The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you so much for being here with me tonight. And this is a particularly special show for us. We've got two guests joining us tonight. In the first hour of the program, Bruce Campbell, who you may or may not have heard of. If you're a horror fan, uh, you've definitely heard of Bruce Campbell. He is a prolific horror actor and started starred in uh, things such as uh, The Evil Dead, um, Bubba Hotep, uh, Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2. Uh, he had a television show called Ash for the Evil Dead. Ash versus the Evil Dead for a while, um, and many, many, many other projects. Um, Bruce Campbell has done a ton of stuff. He's one of the most sought-after uh, actors in the horror genre, and he'll be joining us in the first hour of our discussion to talk about what he's been up to, particularly the reboot of a television program called Ripley's Believe It or Not. He's going to be hosting that. Uh, so that'll be our first hour discussion. In the second hour, we've got another interesting chat to have. <laughs> Sinasta Colucci will be with us. Now, Sinasta is a cult survivor, and he's an author of a book about that experience called Better Than a Turkish Prison, What I Learned from Life in a Religious Cult. And that'll be in the second hour of our discussion. So a lot coming up. Um, we have uh, Scaricon coming up this weekend, too, and I'll just give you one more opportunity to uh, think about that. Go to the website, Scaricon.com. Check out everything that's going on there. It's going to be a great weekend of stuff, including uh, a lot of celebrities, film screenings, panel discussions, parties. Uh, let's see what of great vendors. Uh, it's three days of fabulous fun, and it's family friendly. Let's see, fabulous fun, family friendly. That's pretty cool. And uh, you, you, you just have to go to Scaricon.com, and you'll get all the information you need about the event. It's June 7th through the 9th. Framingham, Massachusetts, right at the Sheridan there. It's right off of I-90, the Mass Pike. Easy to find, great to attend, family-friendly. Children under 10 are free. Bring the kids along. A lot of people costume. They uh, take advantage of it like it's Halloween. And um, the parties, a lot of people come in costume, but even during the day, people are in costume. It's kind of cool. Don't have to be in costume, but it's fun if you like to do that. Uh, Okay, tomorrow night, Bruce the Shark Markison will be filling in for me, as I will be on my way to Scaricon. And uh, he'll have a great guest for you as well. So a lot coming up. Let's uh, take our break so that we can start with our guests because we have a lot to cover tonight. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch, right? now that dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply I, you know, there, there's a, a, a short list of people uh, that I have that I've wanted to interview for a very, very long time and that I hope by the time I retire, I get to interview all of them. But I'm very honored tonight to have one of those people on that list. The legendary Bruce Campbell is with me, actor and host of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Bruce, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks. Who canceled? <laughs> so, uh-huh. so Ripley's Believe It or Not. Now, I get confused about this stuff. Is this a reboot, a relaunch, a remake, a redo? Oh, man, call, what? It, call it what you want. We call it extraordinary. Um, yeah, it's well, it's just we're catching up. <clears throat> you had the Jack Palance version years ago. Yeah. Dean Kane did one. Right. And the world never stops being ridiculous and over the top with extraordinary people. So... We're just kind of 
uh, Ripley's is a hundred, uh, and we, it seems right to go back and get caught up, and it, it still seems very timely, the stuff that's happening and the things that people are doing. Uh, so it, it's pretty neat. It surprised me. Well, I was interested when it came across my desk, but you never know what to expect until you see where the rubber meets the road. So I started to watch these episodes as they would come in. And I'm like, holy crap, holy. <laughs> I like the approach, too. It's a little more docu-style. Uh, we're going into their living room to see what their deal is. It's not just, we're not just watching a car wreck. We're learning about how it happened. That sort of deal. You know, we, we do a, a show here nightly, obviously. We talk about paranormal topics, the weird, the strange, the unusual. Uh, <laughs> okay. Ripley's believe I had it, one recently that I'm happy to share with oh, you. Oh, I, I do want to hear that. But uh, Ripley's Thanks. Believe It or Not uh, kind of takes the same approach in the sense that you're talking about the strange and the unusual. What is it about these topics that fascinate people? Because uh, it's still real. It seems unreal. The stuff that they're doing seems unreal, yet it's real. Uh, they've got everything but the cape. <laughs> Some of the stuff, you know, it literally is superheroes without the cape. Um, and that's what makes it remarkable, that you go, this guy, I'd pass him in the hallway at my, you know, the Marriott Residence Inn. I wouldn't give this guy a second look, but he could kill me with a deck of cards. You know, I don't know. I find that interesting. It's fa- it's fascinating. It absolutely is. Um, here's the whole category. The range of it is amazing. You have nature's over-the-top stuff where you go, am I really looking at that really happening, what I'm looking at? The physicality and the weirdness of it. And then you have people who have a gift that they then exploit to an amazing degree. There are people who have been born with, let's say, a glitch, whatever you want to call it, deformity, uh, and how they not only get back to zero, they go beyond. And then there's the people who, oh, boy, have accidents. You know, horrible accidents happen every day, Uh, sometimes by dumb things we did or trying to do a stunt. And... Man, there's a lot of stories out there. So it's not just the roadkill aspect. And look, there's some stuff. Granny's going to have to turn away on a couple of these stories. <laughs> but uh, there's still, at the heart of it, it's uh, the takeaway is positive. That these are mostly people who are overcoming really amazing adversity. In some cases, mind-bending adversity, where I ask myself, watching these stories, could I have... Oh, could I have the mental toughness to do what that person did to overcome that disability? I don't know. Now, is it true that you got to poke around in the Ripley's warehouse in Orlando? You got to see some pretty cool oh, stuff there? I cracked down? open some crates. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Like, let's see what's in there. Let's see the two-headed this or four-eyed that. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. It, it, was, it was very Indiana Jones in that respect. But it's, it's not quite the you know, turn-of-the-century institution. It's a warehouse. But probably top five world collections, I would think. You know, it's Smithsonian, right. Ripley's, right, same sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. it just, Ripley's goes for the stuff that, uh, Smithsonian's a little stuffier. You know, Ripley's will show you it's still real, it's still amazing, it's still museum-worthy, but it's a little edgier, I think, than... Smithsonian. That's a good way to put it. Now, they've been doing this for 100 years or more. Yeah. And did, did, did it originally start as like a newspaper feature? Was that the beginning of... Yeah, I think he did a, he was did sports stuff, crazy sports stories right. or something. Right. And uh, he did something that, that ran well. And I think it was, might have been, um, you know, an old time uh, William Randolph Hearst type character who said, hey, can you come up with crazy stories for my papers? And of course... If you were syndicated in those papers in those days, you know, that's really how Ripley's built its brand. You saw the logo. The logo hasn't changed in 100 years. And it's pretty interesting because so when that came across my desk, I was like, oh, I've heard of Ripley's. Yeah, it's a household name. The question an an actor always asked is, well, who's going to show it? They were like, the Travel Channel. I'm like, well, I've heard of that. (laughs) Well, let's have a conversation. 
How does it feel to be involved with a with what we would call? I think you used docu uh, style. Uh, I would use reality TV almost in a way. Um, it, is that a bit of a departure from the stuff you've done in the past? Ironically, it's a return. It's a return to. I I got my Screen Actors Guild card doing industrial films in Detroit, which uh-huh. those are training films that like car salesmen would see, but not the general public. Right. So I got my Screen Actors Guild card doing a project for Chrysler that you'll never see. No one will ever see it. I was comparing the ergonomics of a Chrysler versus a Ford and a Chevy and doing cross-sections of seats and let them look at the padding and the foam and all that. And that was all to teleprompter. That was all being the straightforward spokesman guy explaining things. And so, as any actor's career does, I'm full circle now. I started my career that way. Now, here I am, explaining stuff with a teleprompter. <laughs> but I got, I'm used to it. It's actually a very comfortable place to be because that's how I got my earliest training, was doing that sort of stuff. So it was, very, it was a very funny feeling to go back to that decades later. Now this um, this uh, reboot premieres uh, June ninth on Travel yeah. Channel. Is it is it a Sunday uh, a weekly Sunday program? Yeah, Sunday night. Yeah, week weekdays or weeknights on uh, Sunday. Yeah, and uh, as you were going through, whether it was the warehouse or filming uh, some of these episodes with some of the people you got to meet, um, obviously there are some things that amazed you. What are some of the top couple that that stand out? Uh, it's it's increasingly difficult to tell you because there's sixty stories. For oh the wow. Ones the first season alone, 10 episodes. Wow. Each one has six stories. So, you know what it is? The ones that stick out to me are the people who take the hand they're dealt with and come up with a royal flush. Uh, you know, blind kid. Can't see. He wants to ride his bike, just like you or me. So he learns that bats use echolocation by making little click noises. Right. And it bounces off of objects, and it can tell them, depending on how fast, how soon it comes back, how far away it is. And he got to learn, like, how far a wall is, how far this is, if, you know, if something is an alleyway. And he learned it, and doggone if he didn't ride his bike. He got so good at it, he could teach other kids who were also blind how to do it and how to ride their bike. So. Wow. That that to me, I'll take that. That that that's as good as any story on TV. Yeah, and it's real. None of it's fake. None of this is us pulling some goofy story out of our butt to try and amaze you every week. This is this is we're documenting something that's already happened. Do you travel the world for this? No, not me. No, I'm, I do the wraparound. So I'm excited to finally meet some of these people. We're going to San Diego Comic-Con. We're going to do a panel on, uh, I think it's July 20th, and meet some of these ridiculous over-the-top performers. Now, that's a panel. Yeah. When you were, uh, when you said when this crossed your desk, you got excited about it. Um, in addition to hosting this pr- program, um, you're one of the forces behind it. Uh, sure. You know, has, has the, were you a fan of the program in its other incarnations, or uh, was this new to you the first time you saw it across your desk? Uh, no, I've, I've definitely seen it. I saw the shows, you know, they've been around forever. And, and so this was really just a matter of catching up. Yeah. Um, and the only thing I was concerned as a producer was that we get the tone right and that it's not a sideshow. It's not the sideshow. It's not a roadkill mentality. Is We're going to celebrate these people. Um, and I think that's the way to go. Because it is amazing. What they're doing is, un, you know, it's unbelievable, the, the stuff. And what's the, the most unbelievable aspect is that it's just it's not manipulated. It's all real. Yeah. It's real people doing real stuff that seems unreal. Right. The Travel Channel um, is getting ready to launch a program that actually I've got my fingers in a little bit, too, called Ghost Nation. They really seem to be going <laughs> out of... They do the mysterious <laughs> yeah, now, don't they? They really do. Um, they really seem to have an appetite for this stuff that makes you want to scratch your head a little bit. Uh, so it's a great, great home for this program, isn't it? I think it is. This is, you know, I guess this is 
no longer your father's travel channel. <laughs> you know, that they're, they're kind of pushing the envelope. So Ripley's is, yeah, it's a very good match for this sort of stuff. And uh, every, every one of my fans that I mention it to, they're, they're all over it too, like a cheap suit. <laughs> you may have gotten your start um, with a Chrysler uh, informor- in- informative film, um, but a breakthrough role for you was obviously your work with Evil Dead. Did you ever think sure. that that role and what you did there would lead you onto a path that would bring you here today? Well, no, because the first Evil Dead, we didn't even think we were going to finish the stupid movie. You know, it took four years of piecemeal stopping and starting. In fact, it's 40 years this year. Oh, wow. And 40 years ago, 1979, we launched off to make the movie, and we basically worked on it for the next two or three years to finish it up. It didn't come out till 82. Everyone thinks the movie was from 1982. I'm like, yeah, nice try. <laughs> try 79. Wow. So, uh, no, at that time, we were really struggling just to get it into the marketplace, to get it completed, to get it to be seen. Everything else has been gravy since. I just had a discussion with Don Coscarelli. He's um, he's actually going to be attending an event that I promote called Scaricon, and he said one of his <laughs> most memorable experiences was working on the film Bubba Hope Temp with you. What, sure. You remember that one, right? You were Elvis, weren't you? <laughs> Uh, it was very memorable for me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Because, you know, uh, it was the weirdest script I'd ever read. <laughs> and and I had heard of Don. Don were contemporaries, you know. We, right. we were doing Evil Dead. Don was doing Phantasm. Incredibly self-made guy. In, incredibly independent. Like, one of the true independents. He really, I give him total credit for that. So I knew him. I knew his work. I was excited about that. Who wouldn't want to play Elvis? But I was like, where are we in the John Waters factor here? <laughs> and I asked him, I literally was like, are you going to see the penis? That we're, you know, Elvis's cancerous penis. And he said, no. And I went, then I'm, then I'm good. Then you're in. Because once you, once you cross that line, you yeah. ain't coming back. Yeah. Well, Don, Don yeah. said in that discussion that uh, he set out to make sure Elvis was respected in that film. Oh, I hope to this day that one day I would get a note from someone in the Presley family of like, saw the movie, nailed it, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still waiting for that because we did treat it with that of like, pe- famous people get forgotten all the time. Yeah. So it's not that remarkable that 10, 15 years from now, someone would go, who's Elvis Presley? Right, right. You know? You've done a lot of uh, film. You've done a lot of television. Um, prefer either one over the other? I like it's a combo platter. Just keep mixing it up because movies are great for the depth of the story that they can tell and the time that it takes to do it. But the downside is the time that it takes to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you hear about these actors who land the roles in the Marvel superhero movies. They're like, oh my God. And young actors, they kill for these roles, absolutely kill for them. And when I start to explain the reality to it, the, the luster in the young actor's eyes sort of goes, I go, okay, so now you're in a suit where you can't urinate, and you're going to be basically physically uncomfortable for <clears throat> pretty much six months. It's a six-month <laughs> shoot. Then you're going to promote for four months around the world. Oh, it's around the world. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're trapped in a little silver tube. And then you're going to go to the Bahamas for one month, and then you're right back to work on the next one. And that's your decade. Right. You're going to make a shit ton of money, no question about it. But you're going to be looking at tennis balls on sticks, and you won't actually be talking to this other guy because he's a cyborg and he's twice the size, so he won't be here today. Uh, you'll be talking to Barbara, the script supervisor over here. She'll be saying, oh, I love you. I really love you, feeding you the lines of dialogue. And you go shot by shot, not scene by scene. Wow. And part of the reason for me getting out of the Ash character and not really doing that anymore is is what the modern-day actor now has to encounter, which is not bad, but it's really different. The first Evil Dead, we used live ammo. Right. Live you ammo? You want to blow out a window? We're going to just blow out that window. Wow. Tim, cameraman, where are you? <laughs> Wave your hand. Nope, don't be there. Don't be there, you know, be somewhere else, to the point where now Ash vs. Evil Dead, the latest incarnation, 35 years later, point, ready, and 
bang, I jerked the shotgun, interactive light on the set. Mm -hmm. They put a digital flash in that's the size that you want, the color you want, the length that you want, and the smoke that you want, whatever color you want, which is all great. Great for safety, Mm -hmm. you know. No one's ever going to get hurt. But it's become so fake now that none of it seems real enough to be interesting anymore as an actor. Yeah. I mean, literally, the guys will get on a storyboard and go, we're shooting scene 32AE1, part two. And you go, what's that? You looking at the meteor left to right, and then we have to get the opposite uh, right to left. And it's all marks and sticks and guys in... Uh, guys in outfits with little balls on them and green screens or blue screens. So <clears throat> it's become crazy technical, and I'm glad to be able to do it, mm-hmm. to hit multiple marks and to have the willing. It actually tests you most now as an actor than you ever had before. We shot in a crappy cabin in the remote woods in rural Tennessee in 1979. You were there. It was as real as you were going to get. Yeah. Now a guy's in a castle, he's leaning against a doorway that they've built because the rest of it's going to be put in later. That's all you got. Wow. (laughs) So nowadays you actually have to be more imaginative because you're not looking at the serpent today. You're looking at a marker and hoping your eye line is the right place. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So So kind of weird how it's sort of morphed. or it's two guys sitting at a table talking. So movies are either $100 or $100 million. Right. You, uh, I'd be remiss in not asking you to follow up on your comment that you had an experience recently. I'm assuming you meant paranormal. Yeah. <laughs> what I happened, did. Bruce? What I happened? Did. And this, there could be an explanation. Who knows? I'm sure there is for a lot of stuff. I live in a very rural area, and I look at the Siskiyou Mountains that are east and west, one of the few east-west ranges. And it's a big hill, 7,000 feet. It's like a wall. It keeps all the crappy California weather out. Thank God. <laughs> and, and so um, <clears throat> talking on the phone with someone like you, doing a phoner, walking around, looking out, and it's a nice view, mountain view, and it's, a, it's all federal land, so there's no lights on the mountain. No, nobody lives there. And I'm talking, and big warbly light comes up from behind the mountains. I'm, I'm facing south. So it comes up on the south side of the mountain. And warbly light, as though there was like a heat wave kind of deal. It's a, right. it's a singular white light. It wasn't like revolving, blipping lights. It wasn't moving fast. Moving about the speed of what a helicopter would towards you. It seems like it's moving, mm-hmm. but it's not, certainly not moving fast. So as I turn and look at it, I start going, that's an unusual light because... I know all the jet patterns over my property. They're all 35,000 feet. I know the directions to San Francisco, Los Angeles. I know what they sound like, what they look like. Helicopter patterns, everything. So this was different. While I'm looking at it, behind me in the foyer, there's two lights when you first come into the house. And one light, only one light goes and dims down to about half, like a brownout. Mm. And then it comes back up. And pause, so then I look, at, I look at that light, and then the other light on the other side of the floor dims down to about half, and then back up again. And I'm like, that's weird. That sort of synchronizes with me looking at this light. I look back, the light's gone. Wow. So my theory is if the house had a brownout, every light would have browned. Right. Every light would have dimmed, not individually, yeah. like that. Or the, or the power would have gone off completely. Mm-hmm. And so there was no dramatic exit, no nothing, but I really got the impression that there was an entity out there that was messing with me. Any missing time at all? No missing time, hmm. but I just got the sense that there was an entity going, okay, that guy spotted us. Yep. <laughs> let's, let's have a little fun with that light. And then, oh, he's looking at it, and then that light, he's looking back, okay, we're out. Because there's really nothing, it's a, it's a very solitary mountain range. If you wanted to fool around it as a spacecraft, it's not a bad place to go, because most civilization is about two hours north and about two hours south of where I am. And that's the only time you've seen something like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, it's not an unfamiliar 
light because there mm-hmm. are helicopters that fly around at night and stuff because right. they do a lot of you know rangers out looking at crap but it for it to disappear because it was moving so slow beforehand it would have still been there i didn't look away long enough for a slow moving vehicle to leave right you know what i mean yeah, yeah. i looked away i looked back probably 10 seconds later it was gone well, it had taken 40 seconds to get up over the mountains, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this was a slow-moving entity. So I thought, okay, that was weird. And then it was over. And then nothing else later that night, nothing since. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the dimmers. I turn them on every day. Mm-hmm. Everything's back to normal. Hmm. Well, now, so that, there you go. now that you have our number, next time that thing appears, make sure you let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, will. I'll give you an update. I'll see which light fixture they're going <laughs> to they're going to mess with next. Exactly. Um, I th- we're almost done here, but I think uh, I think you and I have a a, a mutual friend, um, Peter Wolverton. Uh-oh. Peter Wolverton. Oh, Pete. Oh, yeah, Pistol Pete. Yeah, Pete. Uh, Pete and I were best friends in high school, actually. And oh, I know that, that is really nice. Yeah, Pete's a great guy. Now, long time at St. Martin's Press. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's I know you worked on a book with those jokers. And, yeah, <laughs> Pete's Pete's great. All right, so the show is Ripley's Believe It or Not. It premieres on Sunday the 9th at 9 p.m. Eastern and 9 p.m. Pacific. Uh, And 10 episodes this first season? 10 episodes, yeah, of Raw Dynamite. 10 episodes of Extraordinary. Any other projects you have in the works that you... We should know about uh, my third book through your buddy uh, P. Wolverton uh, at St. Martin's Press is coming out September seventeenth. That's uh, the follow up to my first book, uh, If Chins Could Kill. <laughs> it's all about the B movie world. It's the next fifteen years. It's part two of my trilogy. Uh, fifteen years from now, I'm going to do the final confession mm-hmm. of a B movie actor. So it, I'm going to tour with the paperback. Love it. Love it, and so, it, uh, keep me busy. And I think uh, there's a bunch of information about not only that, but also uh, your appearances right on your website, right? Oh yeah, it's bruce-campbell.com. If you don't put the hyphen in, you get a Dodge dealership in Michigan. So, <laughs> so unless you're looking make for a sure car, you put the hyphen in. <laughs> bruce, hey, thank you so much for joining me here tonight. It, it was a real pleasure and an honor to speak with you. You bet. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, I'll. Uh, Let's see what happens with Ripley. Let's see what happens as it falls off the truck. See if people want to stick with Extraordinary. It's a deal. Thank you, sir. Take care. Okay, well, like I said, there's uh, there are a few people on a list that um, I really hope I get to interview over the course of my interviewing career. And uh, Bruce Campbell has been one of them for a very, very long time. I, you know, And I couldn't really go into the film's... Uh, that I wanted to discuss because this interview was supposed to be about uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not being reintroduced to Travel Channel, which was fine. It's great. I'm excited about that as well. But I was anxious to talk about uh, some of the films that Bruce has done, particularly Evil Dead and some of his other work. He's done so many things that are important to people who are horror fans and B-movie fans, and I'm both of those, as you can tell, because of my involvement and creation of Scaricon. And I hope someday I'll have Bruce at Scaricon. That's a goal working on that as i said our second guest of the night tonight his name is sinasta kalucci and he's written a book called better than a turkish prison what i learned from life in a religious cult we've all heard of these cults some of us have experience with them sinasta has quite an experience with them he's a cult survivor and decided to write this book about his experience sinasta welcome to beyond reality radio it's a pleasure to have you with me tonight thank you Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about this, and I'm sure some of it is difficult or maybe even painful for you as you um, you know, go through the process of, again, recounting what happened. But first of all, let's get some of the basics out of the way so people know exactly what we're talking about. What um, is or what are 12 Tribes? So the, the 12 Tribes was um, founded in the 1970s uh, by Jean and Marcia Spriggs. Uh, they they currently go by Hebrew names, Yonik and Hyamik. Um, and it was originally a, um, you know, just a Christian community. They went to church, and uh, they happened to live together in a big house in Chattanooga. Eventually, they got several houses because lots of people started joining. And uh, eventually, they, they just split up from... Um, the Presbyterian Church, and they became essentially their own church. Um, and now they're they're all over the world. Um, the last 
last time I checked, they were in nine different countries. Um, and it, it could be more now since I've left. Um, and yeah, they're, they're, um, by definition, a cult. Uh, they, they require you to give up everything you have when you join. Um, they exercise a high level of control over every aspect of your life. Um, you, you are, you work a lot while you're there and you don't get paid for your, um, services and you're not allowed to criticize the group. And that, um, that is the primary aspect of what makes them a cult. So, um, I mean, obviously you didn't join until, um, they'd been established for a while, but what's the appeal? What was the appeal for this group? What made them different and made people want to become part of the organization? Well, back then it was, um, you know, the feeling that, you know, these people are actually um, practicing what they preach. Yonek likes to tell a story a lot about how when they did go to this um, Presbyterian church in Chattanooga, that they showed up one Sunday and there was a sign out front that said, closed for Super Bowl. Um, And so, you know, obviously Yonek lashed out with a lot of harsh criticism towards the church for being hypocritical and, and putting football above God. And, um, you know, so for anyone who was really wanting to follow um, Scripture, um, supposedly the way you're supposed to, um, according to, you know, the group, it, it was really appealing because, you know, here's these people that, you know, they can point to the Bible and say, look, in the book of Acts, it talks about how all who believed were together. They shared all things in common. Um, they gave up all their possessions. We're living like that. And look, you know, other Christians aren't. So, you know, it's kind of like, hey, we're we're better, and here's why. Um, also, for me personally, not having been very religious before, um, the appeal was just that, you know, they were saying this is a better way because there's no rich or poor among us, you know, we, we share our resources, we work together. Um, and then for me, it was like, they were giving me a purpose in life. Um, like I, I wanted to be in a place where I could, um, you know, work and contribute and also have my needs met and, and be able to not focus on that so much. So would you say that um, you had a need or a desire, and maybe this was a common trait among others that joined the group, that you just want to be part of something you felt had a purpose? Right, yeah, and I thought to myself, you know, I, I thought, what what would the world be like if everyone lived like this? And I thought, hey, it'd be great, you know? No, no poor people anymore, no exceedingly wealthy. You know, that was one of the things that really frustrated me as a young man, um, you know, just living in poverty my whole life, looking around and seeing excessive wealth and, and then, you know, seeing on the same street, Detroit is a really good example of this. I was, um, living in Detroit when I decided to join. Um, but you, um, you could walk down Mack Avenue in Detroit and on one side you see Gross Point and it's this gated community with huge mansions. And on the other side, you see Detroit, people are sleeping on the streets. So um, that's the kind of, um, I guess, inequality and injustice that the 12 tribes points out. Um, and it's it's one of the tactics they use, you know, because you're not allowed to criticize the group, but they can criticize others. So, it, you know, in a way, it really helps them. It, to criticize others to make themselves look better. Now, and you, as I soon found out, it wasn't the utopia I thought it would be. You joined in 2005. Uh, I don't remember the exact date you said the, the group formed. It was in the 70s. Um, ha, was the group still what you would consider to be, um, and I'm, I'm not sure this is the right word, but pure in its intent or pure in its mission when you joined or had it already start to change? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I would say that they were doing what they set out to do. Um, but like I said, I did notice uh, along the way, I noticed a lot of things that were off. 
um, and eventually realized that, um, you know, I was being lied to. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I'd say that they did um, accomplish what they set out to do. Are the, are the, are the original uh, founders of this group, are they still, first of all, alive and involved in the group? Is that Are they still there? Yes. Um, when I left in uh, 2012, they were both alive and well. Um, I've heard rumors that possibly Yonake might be suffering from dementia now. Um, but, you know, when I was there, it was he was writing all the teachings, and it was like whatever he says goes. Um, now, as often happens in a group like this, the leaders start out with what they would consider and what others would consider a bit of a noble purpose. But at some point along the way, they they themselves become corrupted. They become a little bit drunk with what the the power that uh, a group like that will give them, and they start to change their behavior and their intent, and uh, many people become disillusioned. But at the same time, many of those people are afraid to leave the group. Is that what happened here as well? Um, I mean, I could speak to people being afraid to leave the group. Um, I don't know what Yonik's original intent was. Um, I don't know if he's strayed from that intent. Right. Uh, I did have the opportunity to meet him, and I, I did write about him in my book and, and his kind of harsh nature. Um, but it, it could very well be that he's always been that way. And in that case, he didn't, you know, stray from his original intent. Um, but I, I will say that, yes, it's it's very hard for members to leave the group, and there's, there's so many aspects to that. Um, like I said, you give up everything you have and so if you leave you you have to essentially start life all over again you you don't get to leave with anything um other than the clothes on your back and wow. maybe a bus ticket wow so um, yeah go ahead um and also you know there's people that are born and raised there that have to leave their family if they decide to leave and they they have to leave everybody they know and love there's um one example would be like pregnant women you know you or I guess anyone that's attached, you you don't want to, if your husband doesn't want to leave and then, and you realize it's not the truth, then you, you're pretty much left with either, you know, leave your husband and, and be a single mom or, or stay and be a slave. So there are a lot of tough situations like that that continually go on within that community. Do you um, know how many members... Uh, whether there was a peak or if now is the peak, how many members are part of this group? They always claim that there's 3,000 um, worldwide, but they've been claiming that for about two decades now. Um, and it could be that that about just as many people join as leave. And right. that, was, that was my experience while I was there. I witnessed a lot of people coming and going. Now, you, you, you were a member of this group for about seven years. Now, um, you told us, I think you gave us kind of an idea of what your life was like before joining. How, but how did it change once you did join? Well, once I got there, I was um, working every day, uh, very long hours, and there was always someone with me, um, and they, they would you know, preach the gospel to me, as they called it. Was the gospel and, was the gospel biblical gospel or was it their gospel? Or was it when you say the gospel, do you mean it was it the virtues <laughs> of the group or was it was it biblical stuff? Well, if you ask most Christians, they would probably say, "Well, no, that's not, um, you know, that's their version of it, uh, and that's a misinterpretation of the Bible." Um, if you ask me, I'd, I'd say, "Yeah, it's it's biblical based. I mean, they're using the Bible." And it's kind of hard to argue with some of those uh, verses that they pull out, like, um, you know, Acts 2.44 through 45 is one thing they quote a lot. Acts 4.32 through 35, those verses are very, very clear as far as, you know, people living together and giving up their possessions. Um, you know, if you ask a Christian, they'll say, well, that was for back then. We don't have to do that now. But... 
nowhere in the Bible does it say you don't have to do that anymore. So yeah, right. yeah, I would say it's I would say it's Bible uh, Bible based. So you were working very hard um, when you joined. You had somebody with you all the time, not only supervising you in a way, but also indoctrinating you uh, the whole time. What else happened? Right. Yeah. And there's um, gatherings twice a day that are mandatory for everyone, even if you're there just as a guest. Um, you do have to get up early in the morning and you do have to go to their morning gathering. And then um, there's one in the evening as well. And they have regular teachings that are um, you know, two to three times a week. As time went on, um, you obviously saw some value in this group um, because you stayed part of it for a while. Um, what was the value that you were getting from it before you recognized that it was probably something you didn't want to be part of anymore? Well, like I said, I I had thought to myself um, before making the decision to get baptized and stay, I thought, what if the whole world lived this way? And I thought that it would be great. And, um, you know, they, they kind of reinstill that, that positive attitude as far as, um, you know, they believe that they're going to bring about the return of, of the Messiah, who they call Yahshua. He's the Jesus of the Bible. Right. And, um, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on uh, gaining new recruits. You know, they call it evangelizing, going out and evangelizing, preaching the gospel, bringing in people, building uh, cafes and, and delis. They have they operate yellow delis all over the country and um, yeah, there's actually cafe there's actually the one name. there's actually one of those delis in my hometown, which I'm I still I'm only 20 miles from there. Um, so I've, I'm familiar with the group from that perspective. I know they operate right. one here. Yeah. So that was I mean, to me, that was something to live for was like seeing all of this stuff get built up. It was exciting to me because I thought, you know, this is the way that we're going to really, you know, it felt like changing the world and also um you know, there's a lot of hope in, in believing the things the Bible says, that God will come and, and wipe away every tear from all their eyes, and it'll be, you know, just peace and prosperity for everyone. So I'd say that's what I was living for, and I did sincerely believe it for a long time. Were you... um, but towards the end, mm-hmm. I'd say that, you know, even after, after not believing anymore, after losing faith, I... Uh, I lived as a slave for a while. Um, and I, I would say that because, like I said before, you can't leave. You're not, you know, you're not allowed to. You're threatened with eternal damnation if you do. And also you have to leave with nothing. So, like, it was kind of a hopeless feeling and, and having to work and stay there not believing um, it and not getting paid for my work, I would say that for at least about a year, I was I was a slave during my time there. What you say work? What work were you doing? Well, uh, I started off on a farm, uh-huh. uh, so I did a lot of farm work throughout my time there. Eventually, I became a teacher, so I was teaching a lot of children, and and we did have a curriculum. There was some stuff that was math and science based and historical. Um, other things, you know, they, they would put a little a twist to it. Um, so, like, instead of calling it science class, they called it creation class. And it was like, mm-hmm. they would still talk about basic science, but they would say, you know, our father created it to be this way. So, right. it was like, you know. Were you religious prior to joining the group? No, I, I kind of, it was kind of a progression. I was not raised religious. Um but I was obsessed with intense processes. As, um, you know, I was a teenager in the late 90s, and right before Y2K and all that, there was a lot of um, talk about the end of the world. Right. I had read a book um, about Nostradamus. There was a lot of different authors at that time really capitalizing on the, the whole end of the world scare. Right. And so they would interpret Nostradamus's works, which are essentially just poems, which you can interpret however you want. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I, I was kind of naive at the time, and I, so I read this book, and 
talking about how the world's going to end in 1999, and um, it talked a lot about biblical prophecy, and so that's that started the ball rolling as far as being interested in the Bible specifically. You um you joined the group in 2005. In the beginning, you felt it was um, a nice example of maybe the way society should work. But at some point, you started to become disillusioned. Did something specific happen, or was it gradual over time? In either way, what was it that happened? Well, there was a series of events. Um, I, I'd say the, the earliest um, that really started um, like a spark of doubt in me Um I, I have sickle cell anemia, and um, so, you know, I had a lot of uh, issues with that in the community. And, and there was one time when um, it was a nice, uh, sunny, warm Missouri day, and um, someone came to me and they said, hey, we're going out evangelizing. We're leaving right now. And so, like, they, you know, they didn't give me any time to grab anything. Um, so I, I left with just you know, what I was wearing, which was jeans and a t-shirt. Cause it was a nice, um, sunny day, you know, but as often happens in Missouri, the weather changed pretty quickly, dropped down 40 degrees. And I was outside with, you know, nowhere to go, just handing out free papers. They call them, um, the pamphlets they hand out, they call them free papers. Um, they're like little booklets that they give to people. Um, and I, you know, with, with, sickle cell anemia, you're not supposed to go from hot to cold really fast. It, it causes a crisis, a, a really painful crisis. And so that night I was just laying in bed just in excruciating pain thinking, you know, wondering, is this what the lake of fire is like? And I was wondering, like, why is God punishing me for doing what he sent me to do? You know, because I thought I was being faithful, you know, like it just right. it didn't connect. Why am I being punished for this? I thought I was doing his will. You know, you, you don't get to decide who you marry. You don't you don't get to decide if you get married that they decide that for you. Oh wow. Um but they set up, you know, what's called a, a waiting period where you it's a time to like get to know each other, um, without any you know, physical you know, it's all just, you know, talking, taking walks together or whatever. Right. right. No physical contact. Um so they said, you know, I could go on a waiting period with this young woman. And, you know, they gave me a specific time. They said, we're going to talk about it in our next meeting. And then I asked, you know, did you talk about it? And they said, no. You know, <laughs> and then they kept on, you know, leading me on, leading me on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't the worst of it. Like, it, it got worse. <laughs> wow. um, they, there was another situation where, uh, there was a woman who had cancer, and they tried, you know, treating her. Um, they they put a black cohosh salve on her, and there were all these teachings about how, you know, she was getting better, and they compared it to, like, the whole 12 tribes, how, you know, we were once in sin, but now God's healing us. And, and just like he healed, um, Rakhafet was the woman's name. Just like he healed Rock Hassett, he he's healing us. And um, well, anyway, she she ended up dying, and um, they didn't tell us in the, the community where I was living at at the time. And I found out through a young man who was visiting his mother, and his mother happened to be one of Rock Hassett's caretakers, and. He came. He came back from visiting that community, and he saw us all in the gathering praying for Rochester to get better. And he um, spoke to one of the leaders, and I happened to be sitting right there. And he said, "They don't know that uh, Rochester's dead." And the leader responded with, "Well, we're waiting to announce it because we don't know." what this means in light of the teachings. So in other words, in order to preserve our you know, religion yeah. that's obviously dead, <laughs> you know, we, we have to deceive people so they don't think that it's dead. Wow. When obviously it is. And so then for the next couple of weeks I had to watch as as people were 
you know, emotionally praying for this woman's recovery, knowing <laughs> that she was dead. Right. And I couldn't say anything because they would kick me out. And so, you know, that was, that was really hurtful. So, uh, you know, a lot of us have heard stories about cults, um, whether it's, you know, the Jim Jones cult, uh, and we all know what happened there, or it's even something like Scientology where they use intimidation and violence was intimidation and violence. Part of any of this, whether it was happening while you were there or while, when you try to leave or after you leave that group. I didn't witness any violence. Um, as far as intimidation, there was another story about, um, someone that I did know, uh, out in the community in California and he left in the middle of the night with a young woman who was visiting as a guest. The woman had been a member at one point, um, and then she came and visited, um, and they both left together. Well, they they ended up dying in a car crash that night. And oh, so the leaders, when they announced what had happened, they told us that um, you know, their judgment was that if you leave uh, the place of our father's protection, that there's no guarantee that you'll be protected. In other words, they're saying, hey, you leave, you die. Yeah. So I would I would say that was intimidation. Was there any restriction on outsiders uh, contacting or visiting? Uh, you know, again, going back to the J- Jonestown example, they were very, very... Um, I don't know what the word is. They were they had a lot of restrictions, and people often couldn't contact members of the group. Uh, did was did any of that exist for you? Well, you're you're not allowed to use um, you know internet or um, TV or radio. Um, it, they the leaders use internet, and if you're you know given a specific project that requires it. Maybe you can use it for that specific right. thing, but otherwise they don't they don't just let you you know get on the computer and check your email or whatever. Um, they don't allow the members to have Facebook or any social media. And um, as far as contact, they actually do encourage um, families and friends to visit in the hopes oh, okay. that hope you'll um, convert. You know one. they can they can evangelize to them as yeah. well, but. Um, you know, as soon as they criticized the group, obviously they wouldn't be allowed to visit anymore, um, you know, if that person is being critical. How, um, is there racism? Is there uh, mis- misogyny? Uh, any child abuse? Anything like that going on in this group? Uh, racism, for sure. They they actually have a, a teaching called the Han Teaching, and um, it's based on uh, Genesis. Um, chapter 9, after the flood, um, it talks about Noah and his three sons, and um, the, the Hebrew name for those, uh, for Noah's sons, is Ham, Shem, and Yafeth. Um, I think the way it's written in the English Bible is uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, but the, the Twelve Tribes uses a lot of the Hebrew names. So um, they talk about how Ham and and his descendants were cursed, and that um, they they believe that all all black people are the the descendants of Tom. And you know, it was I was there for about a year before I heard this teaching, mm-hmm. and by that time I was like fully indoctrinated. And even even so, it was it was really hard for me to hear it, and I got offended the first time I heard it. But eventually I did come to accept it. Um, now I know that I was wrong to accept it. Right. Um, but, you know, now I know that, that race-based slavery is morally repugnant. You know, and I knew that before joining. That's the crazy thing about it. Like, yeah. You know, but while I was there, yes, I did believe their teachings. And they, they taught this, and and they taught that. Um, you know, slavery exists because, you know, God made it that way after the flood that black people would be enslaved to white people. And, and they teach that that's uh, the only path of righteousness for a black person. Wow. And, 
this is something that they will not put on their website. And that's one of of the main criticisms I have against them. There's even a section on their website, you know, on the about us section that it'll say, you know, are we racist? And of course it's the black man answering the question saying, no, the 12 tribes have afforded my race with great dignity and, and respect. Um, so, you know, they have these token black people going out and, and trying to play a, a right. PR role. Right. Um, but, but yes, yeah, built into their teachings is, um, you know, this blatant racism, um, misogyny as well. I would say, uh, you know, if you're a woman and you join the, the 12 tribes, then, uh, you typically work in the kitchen or do house cleaning, take care of children, stuff that they would say is, you know, a woman's work and, uh, wives are, are taught to be submissive to their husbands. As far as child abuse, um, they, they do teach to spank children and they have, they use wooden rods for that. And, um, since leaving, I've learned that there's actually a scientific consensus on that, that spanking damages a child's, um, mental development. So it's, you know, it's more psychological harm than anything. Right. Um, and, and the teachings say, you know, you're not supposed to physically harm the child, but I've heard stories of people that have have claimed to be eaten bloody. I've never witnessed that myself, Mm. but I have seen, you know, the spanking. Yeah. I, I, I happen to be a product of, uh, parents who spanked, um, I think I turned out okay, but I do remember some of those spankings. But I never with a wooden rod or anything like that, just a hand. Um, let's talk about how you left. Uh, you, you made a decision to leave. How long did, did it take from that decision to you actually being able to walk out? And when you did, what happened? Well, like I said, I, I did live there um, basically as a slave for a while, not not believing. Um, but I'm, I'm really a bad liar, and I don't like to pretend. So I didn't, you know, I, I was open about my unbelief. And when that happens, when you are in disagreement with the group over anything, in this case, it was belief in God and, and the Bible itself. So it was a really big deal. Um, so when you're in uh, disagreement with the group, then uh, you're essentially cut off is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Um so you, you still get to live there as long as you do the work and you listen to them and you're obedient. But um, like in the gatherings, you don't get to lift your hands in prayer with the rest. You have to stand back um, and watch. And you don't wear what they call it a diadem. It's, um, it's like a headband that's made out of white linen. And it's symbolic of, you know, when the Messiah comes back, he's going to put a crown on, on all of their heads, is what they teach. So you don't get to wear that. And so you, you really stand out. It's like being ostracized and you become a target. And of course, people are going to want to be really preachy at you mm-hmm. as soon as you're cut off. Like um, For someone that doesn't like much attention, like someone that's not very extroverted, it's it can be extremely difficult to be in that position. I I was living with um, a woman who's now my wife, and, and she, at, at a certain point, she was wanting to leave as well. Was this and, someone, was this woman who is now your wife, someone that was prearranged for you, or just someone you met along the way? No, she, she was living there as a member as well, um, the, at the farm in Missouri. And, um, actually a little bit of a backstory. I, I wouldn't have, I still wouldn't have left. Like I wouldn't have known where to go. Um, but I got sent up, uh, to Northern Michigan to go to my sister's wedding. And, um, so, you know, my stepfather was there and he has a farm in Northern Michigan and and he was 
you know, concerned for me. And he said, hey, if you ever need a place to go, you could come stay with me. And so that, you know, gave me a way out. I was still in the community for a few months after that, but I definitely thought about it as an option, you know. So having that option really helped in a big way. Um, so, yeah, when when Molly, she's my wife, when when Molly was really struggling and wanting to leave and, like, she didn't like it there anymore, she was like, I'm going to hitchhike. And I approached her, you know, I was like, you don't have to do that. You can uh, leave with me. And so we were talking after that. And like I said, you're, you're not allowed to do that. They're very controlling. Um, you're not allowed to have conversations like that with the opposite sex. Right. Um, and then she ended up writing a note to me and that's how we got, you know, found out, um, which was fine because we were wanting to leave anyway. Um, so they had a meeting with us and kicked us out that night, uh, got us a bus ticket to Northern Michigan and we lived with my stepdad for a few months. You, you, um, I mean, obviously you've written a book about this experience and I'm, uh, it's not, you know, complimentary ultimately, uh, to the group. Um, has there been any consequence to that? Um, not yet. Uh, I got an email once, um, from someone in the group that said, um, you know, they, they were really upset that I would compare it to a prison because, you know, the title of my book yeah. is better than a Turkish prison. Right. I did. In my defense, I did say better. Right. <laughs> you did <laughs> say better than. Yes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So we're, we're basically running out of time here, um, Sanasta, but I want to ask you about uh, your opinions for and your advice for other people. If if a young person or any person for that matter is considering joining this group or any group like this, what's your advice to them? Uh, don't be afraid to be critical. Uh, if someone says you can't criticize the group, uh, that's a huge red flag. <laughs> right. Um, if you're going to base your whole life on something, um, at least look at it with, uh, you know, the same level of criticism you would look at, like say, just to use an analogy a bridge that you you have to drive over every day. You know, we have bridge inspectors and they they point out faults in a bridge. You know, it's their job. Nobody calls them a bridge basher. Uh, so the same thing, in my opinion, should apply to religion. If you're going to base your life off of it, uh, you know, don't be afraid to, to give it a high level of scrutiny. And if it doesn't hold up to the scrutiny, then it's not worth it. Um, and, and certainly don't, you know, give up everything you have. Uh, the 12 Tribes is not the only group that demands that. Um, you, you really shouldn't have to give up anything, really. I mean, you can be, you can be generous and, um, you know, still live comfortably at the same time and still have your independence. Um, I talk a lot about it's funny, but I do talk a lot about politics and religion with my boss. Um, not typical workplace environment, but mm-hmm. um, he's a he's a Catholic, and and he told me, you know, before because he he became a Catholic as an adult. He said before joining the church, he actually um, he has like a I guess you'd call it a litmus test. Like he's not going to be part of any church that says that you have to give money directly to the church. Yeah. So like um if they if they say hey you can be charitable in other ways too you know then there's no harm in that. And you know I I'm not I'm not religious anymore. I'm an atheist now, but I think he has a good point, you know, if you if you're seeking out a religion, don't don't um don't go to one that says hey we're the only way. Yeah. You know, and and you can't be charitable. Like you have to give directly to us. You um, the book is called "Better Than a Turkish Prison: What I Learned from Life in a Religious Cult." Where can people get a hold of it? Um, it's available on on Amazon and also Barnes and Noble, um, both of those websites. And the publisher is Hypatia Press. 
their, their website is hypatiapress.org. And you also have a Facebook page where you, um, I guess you discuss some of this as well. How, where can people find that? Right. That's um, Better Than a Turkish Prison. Um, so it's Facebook at Better Than Turkish Prison. Got you. Um, Sinasta, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this story with us. Any last words uh, of warning or wisdom for people who might be caught in a similar situation? Yes. Uh, if you're caught in, in it, I would say find someone on the outside who can help you get out. And there are charities out there that that can help. Um, so that's, yeah. that's number one, is a lot of times they just physically need help. Like they need Right, um, place to stay, money know, to get started. Place to stay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Find mm-hmm. a find a friend on the outside that you can trust. Right, great. Well, once again, thanks for being here. Fascinating discussion, and uh, best of luck with getting the word out through the book. Okay, Bruce the Shark Markison in tomorrow night. We'll catch you all next time. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.